So what would you do if you were hauled in before a court, your words twisted, and you were falsely accused? Worse, the reason why you were in court to begin with was because you had told the truth. That you had actually desired to spread good news, even if it didn't seem that way. What would you do? How would you react? Would you protest? Get defensive or angry? What if you were on trial for proclaiming your faith, for living out your faith? Would the charges even come up? Could you give a defense? Would you be willing to? Today we're going to look at that exact situation. We're going to look at what it really means to be a Christian, to bear witness for Christ, even in a hostile world. If you turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Acts, chapter 7, we're going to continue our series looking at the unfinished work of the church. And today we're coming to a turning point in the story of Acts. We are coming to a place where the page gets turned, so to speak. And last week we were introduced to Stephen, a man with a short but significant life. He said he had a Lifetime Achievement Award. We remember him for being one of the first of what we would call probably deacons, arguably the first Christian martyr, and today we're going to look at what led him there. You see, Stephen had this ongoing willingness to bear witness to Christ in a hostile world. This man's life was changed by Jesus. He couldn't go back to where he had been before because His life was forever changed by the gospel. Jesus changes everything. Because in Jesus Christ, God reaches down into creation and restores the link to a broken world. Stephen lived in a very different situation than we do. As we heard in a prayer, we have... Freedom to come here to worship. Stephen lived in a hostile world in ways that we can't imagine. The secular authorities were hostile, though at this point, frankly, they didn't care too much because the church wasn't big enough. It was, ironically, the religious leaders of his day that were most openly hostile. And not just any religious leaders. It was the conservative ones, the orthodox ones, the ones who thought they had everything right and claimed quite loudly that they were following God. Today, any hostility we face is fairly tame. In fact, most people simply don't care. Spiritual things aren't on their minds. I listened to an interview this past week with Pastor Tim Keller of Redeemer Presbyterian Church in New York City. And he says that our culture has basically been designed to inoculate people against Christianity. And that the culture around us puts forward every failure of the church. 
The hostility that we might face today is not so much that we get our faith wrong, but that we have any faith to speak of at all. But it doesn't matter if it's Stephen's day or today, we face consequences if we actually bear witness to Christ. Stephen was a man used by God. He held a position of honor in the church. He served the church. He was called a man full of faith and the Holy Spirit, full of God's grace and power. He performed miracles and he spoke wisdom to his former friends among the Hellenistic, the Greek-speaking Jews. And he knew full well what following Christ could cost him. The death of Christ that we just celebrate in communion, was not so long in the past for him. And so for bearing witness to Christ, he is arrested and brought before the Sanhedrin, the council, and he's charged with blasphemy, which is a capital offense. And that's where we pick up his story this morning in Acts chapter 7. And this is not a short passage. But I want to read the whole thing. I want you to hear What Stephen says, what Stephen does. I'm reading from the NLT and starting in chapter 7, verse 1. Then the high priest asked Stephen, are these accusations true? Accusations from 6.11. We heard him blaspheme Moses and even God. This was Stephen's reply. Brothers and fathers, listen to me. Our glorious God appeared to our ancestor Abraham in Mesopotamia before he settled in Haran. God told him, leave your native land and your relatives and come to the land I will show you. So Abraham left the land of the Chaldeans and lived in Haran until his father died. Then God brought him here to the land where you now live. But God gave him no inheritance here, not even one square foot of land. God did promise, however, that eventually the whole land would belong to Abraham and his descendants, even though he had no children yet. God also told him that his descendants would live in a foreign land where they would be oppressed as slaves for 400 years. But I will punish the nation that enslaves them, God said. And in the end, they will come out to worship me here in this place. And God also gave Abraham the covenant of circumcision at that time. So when Abraham became the father of Isaac, he circumcised him on the eighth day. And the practice was continued when Isaac became the father of Jacob. And when Jacob became the father of the twelve patriarchs of the Israelite nation. These patriarchs were jealous of their brother Joseph and they sold him to be a slave in Egypt. But God was with him and rescued him from all his troubles. And God gave him favor before Pharaoh, king of Egypt. God also gave Joseph unusual wisdom so that Pharaoh appointed him governor over all of Egypt and put him in charge of the palace. But a famine came upon Egypt and Canaan and there was great misery and our ancestors ran out of food. Jacob heard that there was still grain in Egypt so he sent his sons, our ancestors, to buy some. The second time they went, Joseph revealed his identity to his brothers and they were introduced to Pharaoh. Then Joseph sent for his father Jacob and all of his relatives to come to Egypt, 75 persons in all. So Jacob Jacob went to Egypt. He died there, as did our ancestors. Their bodies were taken to Shechem and buried in the tomb Abraham had bought for a certain price from Hamor's sons in Shechem. 
As the time drew near when God would fulfill his promise to Abraham, the number of our people in Egypt greatly increased. But then a new king came to the throne of Egypt who knew nothing about Joseph. This king exploited our people and oppressed them, forcing parents to abandon their newborn babies so they would die. And Moses, at the ta- that time, Moses was born a beautiful child in God's eyes. His parents cared for him at home for three months. When they had to abandon him, Pharaoh's daughter adopted him and raised him as her own son. Moses was taught all the wisdom of the Egyptians and he was powerful in both speech and action. And one day when Moses was 40 years old, he decided to visit his relatives, the people of Israel. He saw an Egyptian mistreating an Israelite. So Moses came to the man's defense and avenged him, killing the Egyptian. And Moses assumed that his fellow Israelites would realize that God had sent them to re- sent him to rescue them, but they didn't. The next day he visited them again and saw two Men of Israel fighting. He tried to be a peacemaker. Men, he said, you are brothers. Why are you fighting each other? But the man in the wrong pushed Moses aside. Who made you a ruler and judge over us, he asked. Are you going to kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? When Moses heard that, he fled to the country and lived as a foreigner in the land of Midian. There his two sons were born. Forty years later in the desert near Mount Sinai, an angel appeared to Moses in the flame of a burning bush. When Moses saw it, he was amazed at the sight, and he he went to take a closer look. A voice of the Lord called out to him, I am the the God of your ancestors, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Moses shook with terror, and he did not dare look. Then the Lord said to him, Take off your sandals, for you are standing on holy ground. I have certainly seen the oppression of my people in Egypt. I have heard their groans and have come down to rescue them. Now go, for I am sending you back to Egypt. So God sent back the same man his people had previously rejected when they demanded, Who made you a ruler and judge over us? Though the angel who appeared to him in the burning or through the angel who appeared to him in the burning bush, God sent Moses to be their ruler and savior. And by means of many wonders and miraculous signs, he led them out of Egypt, through the Red Sea, and through the wilderness for forty years. Moses himself told the people of Israel, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your own people. Moses with our ancestors was with our ancestors the assembly of God's people in the wilderness when the angel spoke to him at Mount Sinai. And there Moses received the life-giving words to pass on to us. But our ancestors refused to listen to Moses. They rejected him and wanted to return to Egypt. They told Aaron, make us some gods who can lead us, for we don't know what has become of this Moses who brought us out of Egypt. So they made an idol shaped like a calf and they sacrificed to it. And celebrated over this thing that they had made. Then God turned away from them and abandoned them to serve the stars of heaven as their gods. In the book of the prophets it is written, Was it to me you were burning, bringing sacrifices and offerings during those forty years in the wilderness, Israel? No, you carried your pagan gods, the shrine of Molech, the star of your god, Rephon. And the images you made to worship them. So I will send you into exile as far as Babylon. Our ancestors carried the tabernacle with them through the wilderness. It was constructed according to the plan God had showed Moses. 
Years later, when Joshua led our ancestors into battle against the nations that God drove out of this land, the tabernacle was taken with them into new territory, into their new territory, and it stayed there until the time of King David. David found favor with God and asked for the privilege of building a permanent temple for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who actually built it. However, the Most High doesn't live in temples made by human hands. As the prophet says, heaven is my throne and earth is my footstool. Could you build me a temple as good as that? Asked the Lord. Could you build me such a resting place? Didn't my hands make both heaven and earth? You stubborn people, you heathen at heart and deaf to the truth, must you forever resist the Holy Spirit? That's what your ancestors did, and so do you. Name one prophet your ancestors didn't persecute. They killed the ones who predicted the coming of the righteous one, the Messiah whom you betrayed and murdered. You deliberately disobeyed God's law, even though you received it from the hands of angels. The Jewish leaders were infuriated by Stephen's accusation, and they shook their fists in rage. Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed steadily into heaven and saw the glory of God, and he saw Jesus standing in the place of honor at God's right hand. And he told them, Look, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing in the place of honor at God's right hand. Then they put their hands over their ears and began shouting, They rushed him and dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. His accusers took off their coats and laid them at the feet of a young man named Saul. As they stoned him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. He fell to his knees shouting, Lord, don't charge them with this sin. And with that, he died. Saul was one of the witnesses and he agreed completely with killing Stephen. A great wave of persecution began that day, sweeping over the church in Jerusalem. And all the believers except the apostles were scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria. Some devout men came and buried Stephen with great mourning. But Saul was going everywhere to destroy the church. He went from house to house, dragging out both men and women to throw them in prison. Father... It's a long passage and a short summary of an entire life given for you. I pray that this morning we would learn from Stephen, that we would hear from you, and we would see what you would have for us to do here in the 21st century. It's in Christ's name I pray, amen. Stephen was a man not afraid to bear witness to Christ, even when falsely accused. And I believe there's a pattern here in our passage today that can still be of use to us, even though our world is so different. In fact, I see seven actions by Stephen in today's passage that each and every one of us can emulate. And the very first is that Stephen was willing to seize the moment. He's accused unfairly and he does not hide. He doesn't back down. He doesn't deny. He is not frozen or at a loss for words. He seizes the moment. Part of the reason why I 
read the entire passage this morning is, there is no way I can get to every part of what's going on in this sermon. I just can't do it. There's too much going on there. In fact, this is the longest sermon recorded in Acts. It's not by Peter. It's not by Paul. It is the sermon by a guy who's not one of the apostles. He's been elected to be a leader. But he is not the person who we would expect to be in this position. He's a man chosen and willing to serve. A man who 2,000 years we hold up as an example. A hero of the faith because of, depending on your printed Bible, somewhere in between three and five pages of this entire book. That's all we have about Stephen. I believe that Stephen was a man like us. And it was his martyrdom that would be the catalyst that moves the church out of Jerusalem and into the surrounding areas. And I think the difference between Stephen and us is maybe he was, to quote the video earlier, all in. He doesn't back down, but notice Stephen's attitude in verse 2 of chapter 7. Brothers and fathers, listen to me. He doesn't get defensive. He does not attack. He shows respect to people who are falsely accusing him. And all too often when we are attacked, when we are accused, especially when it's done wrongfully, we attack back. And we make it about us. We get defensive. But when Stephen seizes the moment, he does not do this. He approaches a terribly unjust situation with humility and respect. He doesn't make it about him because you see that's the second action that he takes. He seeks God's glory. Again in verse 2. Listen to me. Our glorious God appeared to our ancestor Abraham. What does Stephen do? He knows that the accusation is really not about him. He is the excuse. The issue, the real heart of the matter, is Jesus. Why has Stephen's life been turned upside down? Why is he the target of the leaders in the synagogue and in the Sanhedrin? What would cause the Sanhedrin, a group made up of Pharisees and Sadducees who don't like each other, what would cause them to get on the same page and unite against him? You see, Stephen's life His witness makes them all nervous. It contradicts the prevailing culture. In Jesus, Stephen has been changed by the God of the universe. And he sought God's glory above his own or anyone else's. He didn't worry about defending himself head on because he knew that that wasn't what was really at stake. He begins his sermon with the glory of God and he ends his sermon when the leaders are raging against him in verse 55. And this is what he says. Stephen, full of, of the Holy Spirit, gazed steadily into heaven 
and saw the glory of God. And he saw Jesus standing in the place of honor at God's right hand. And he told them, look, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing in the place of honor at God's right hand. God's glory is first and last in what Stephen does. That is all for Stephen. And that is what a life of bearing witness to Christ looks like. Look at the glorious God we serve, Stephen says. Look at what he has done. Look at what he has made. Look at him, not look at me. He begins with God's glory and he builds and he shows that Jesus is the embodiment of that glory. He shows Jesus as the Son of Man, a term that only Jesus uses for himself and one that the Jewish leaders Putting Stephen on trial, they knew that Jesus used that term of himself. And they knew that it connected Jesus very specifically with God. They knew, essentially, when he says, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing in the place of honor. They knew that Jesus had said much the same thing in Matthew 3. They knew that Stephen was saying that Jesus is the glory of God for us. And they knew that Stephen was claiming by seeing Jesus standing as a witness to what Stephen is saying. That Stephen is saying God approves of what I am saying. When we bear witness to Christ today, we have to seek God's glory first and last. Stephen didn't get defensive. He didn't proclaim his innocence. He didn't retaliate. He kept the focus where it belongs. On God's glory. But that doesn't mean he didn't defend himself. You see, the third thing he does is he subverted these false accusations with the real story. Here's the thing about a defense. It doesn't have to be head-on to work. Stephen's response is pretty amazing when you think about it. But it does seem kind of odd at first glance. You know, he doesn't say, you're wrong. He gives a history lesson. Right? I was on the debate team in college. And we were good. And we were taught to answer every argument directly, if possible. They bring something up, point for point. You argue. Every one of them. That's how you win. But sometimes you couldn't do that. Sometimes you didn't have the evidence and it was all about the evidence. Sometimes you had to get creative. To tell an alternative story, even better, you needed to take what the other team was arguing against you and turn it on them. And into an advantage for you. One time, my partner and I, he's a pastor in Ohio today, We were in a debate, and the other team said that our plan, the plan that we were were presenting, if we enacted this plan, that the result would be totalitarianism and ultimately nuclear war. Because, you see, the worst possible result is always nuclear war, and your goal in these things is not to live in the real world, it is to win, right? 
And that's what was, was said. See, the, other th- the thing about this, this particular debate was the other team had really absolutely not proven their case at all. Like, they completely didn't. And, and we could have won on the merits easily, and I knew it. And in cross-examination, in between speeches, there's a bunch of different speeches, in cr- cross-examination, my partner went out of his way to prove their point for them. And I was getting crazy sitting there. Because I'm like, what are you doing? They didn't, they didn't prove this at all. I wasn't happy. But he looks at me and he said, trust me. And then he gets up for his next speech and immediately he says in debate language, which is a little bit different than this, he says, they're right, we do cause this, and we do it immediately. And I was bug-eyed. Then he says the most amazing thing that I had ever heard anyone say, because it's ridiculous. Totalitarianism is good. And he proceeds to read evidence after evidence after evidence that basically says that a totalitarian system is the best thing that has ever happened to any government or any people anywhere in the history of the world. Now, you and I might know that's crazy, but remember... This is a debate, and the goal is to win. And the other team is dumbfounded. Because they're thinking, well, what we just said is supposed to destroy your case. And what my partner did was said, no, absolutely, you make it even better for us. They had no idea what to do. It was a bold and unconventional move. And we crushed them. And afterwards... The judge was totally amused by this whole thing and asked us, did you write this this way just so you could do that? The answer was no. I was about ready to tell him I about strangled my partner right then. But sometimes we have to turn what seems to be a disadvantage to our own advantage. And that is, in a nutshell, what Stephen does here in this sermon. He turns the argument of his accusers against them. He takes... And addresses these influential men in the time, of his time, in the style of their time, and with the themes that matter to them. Not with what matters to him, although I think it does. He takes the charges and he turns them on their head. You see, he knows that Jesus is the crux of the argument. But if he starts with Jesus, he is not going to get a hearing. He ends with Jesus. He starts with the things that matter to those people who are accusing him. The people who have brought charges against him. This synagogue we heard about last week. They're Hellenistic Jews. This means that they are Greek speakers. Their cultural background is Greek. They are part of what's known as the Jewish diaspora. They had been spread out around the Roman and Greek world. And these are people who had been exiled from the Holy Land and they chose to come back. Even though their culture was no longer ethnically Jewish. It would be like me with the last name of O'Brien deciding to move to Ireland and immerse myself and say, I am Irish, even though my family hasn't been there since the early 1800s, even though I'm as much English and French and German and American Indian, as I am Irish at this point, I am completely an American mutt. 
It would be like deciding that that one part of my heritage was what mattered the most. And I would give up everything for it. That's what the Hellenists had done. Because the land, the promised land, the holy land, was crucial for this group of people. And he stands accused also of blaspheming against the law of Moses in the temple. The land, the law, and the temple. These were the three most important elements in first century Judaism. Because the Romans had taken over their land. They hadn't fulfilled the law the way they knew they should. That's the Pharisees. And the temple was the center of Jewish identity and worship. And that's where the Sadducees lived. These are the things that everything rose and fell upon. And Stephen addresses them all in his sermon. And he does it in a very interesting way. To our ears, it's a long story. It took me over eight minutes to read. I timed it. But he just told thousands of years of history. He chose what he chose in this story for a reason. He truncated the story in ways that give scholars fits. Because the details don't always line up with the Old Testament accounts. They're close, but they're off just a little bit. And today we get all tense when the details don't line up. We address literature and speeches as if they were all well designed by or should have been designed by engineers. But precision wasn't the standard that Stephen was going for. These are the stories of his people. He's not just quoting the scriptures, though he is doing that. He's also quoting the stories that everyone tells, and that's in every bit of other Jewish literature at the time. These are the things that are written about and talked about in popular writings and teachings. And if you've ever read a kid's Bible, kid's storybook Bible, you know what's going on here, right? You're telling the story in broad strokes, not in precise detail. And that's what he's doing. And Richard Longenecker in the Expositor's Bible Commentary says this about this sermon. There is a remarkable psychological and emotional truth in Luke's report of Stephen's address. Stephen, with his life at stake, was speaking under intense emotion and with God-given eloquence. With remarkable, remarkable verisimilitude, which means believability or plausibility, I had to look it up, Luke shows him using commonly understood language as in vivid terms and with burning eloquence, he refers to Israel's history. Stephen's speech was not a scholarly historical survey. It was a powerful portrayal of God's dealing with Israel. And it mounted inexorably to a climax that unmasked the obstinacy and disobedience of Israel and of their leaders in Stephen's time. Church history knows few, if any, greater displays of moral courage than Stephen showed in this speech. And to dissect it on precisionist ground shows a lack of understanding of its basic truth. Stephen preached the sermon that was needed. The exact sermon that was needed. He infused it with a true story of God. One that answered the charges against him because it showed what God had been up to. And what the people of Israel had so often walked away from. Stephen showed that the very story of Israel... 
the story of the land from Abraham onward, the law in Moses, and the temple itself subverted the accusations being brought against him. He doesn't defend himself. He showed that God's story, the story of God's people, was all the defense he needed. He showed very clearly he was not denying the importance of the land or of the law or of the temple. He showed that the very story of God's people showed that consistently, constantly, those things had been abandoned and abused by the people of God for thousands of years. They had been misused and misappropriated. And as important as the land was, What does Stephen's sermon say? Hey, it doesn't matter where you're at. Only in God can true rest be found. Because Abraham in Mesopotamia and Haran, Joseph and Moses in Egypt, and Midian and in Sinai, and even as far as the exile in Babylon, God was at work. He did not require that patch of dirt. Wherever God meets his people, There is holy ground, Stephen tells us. And contrary to the accusations, he is not denigrating Moses, but showing that Moses and the law he brought had routinely been ignored by the people. He recites the true story of Moses. And he shows his respect for Moses. And he shows that Moses had promised a prophet just like him. One that the first century Jews were looking for. Their Messiah, the one that they wanted, many times they said he's got to be like Moses. And Stephen tells them, he came. He was here. You knew it just like Moses said and you ignored him. Stephen is accused of blasphemy against the temple, the center of Jewish worship and identity. And the accusations in chapter 6, verse 14, seem to echo the accusation in Mark 14 against Jesus, when Jesus says that he would destroy the temple in three days and raise it again. You see, Stephen's words were used against him, but they were twisted. Because no doubt Stephen was quoting Jesus. Stephen shows that the tabernacle and the temple of Solomon were not containers for God. God chose these places to show that he was with Israel, but Israel constantly betrayed him. The temple is not the end or the goal of Jewish religion, as the Jewish leaders in Stephen's time made it out to be. It was the symbol of God being with his people, not containing him. The point of the temple was not the building, but that God, the God who commissioned the building, was with His people. That's what He says in verses 49 and 50 when He talks about heaven being His throne and the earth His footstool. Here's the thing. Stephen had to know his own story in order to use it. His sermon is saturated In scripture. In the Old Testament. He quotes and summarized passages from Genesis and Exodus. From Numbers and Deuteronomy. He refers to events in Joshua and Samuel and Kings. And he echoes the psalmist and quotes Isaiah and Amos. This is a man with God's word hidden in his heart. 
Recently, I was in a meeting with Samuel Chang, who's president of the Seed Company, who's part of the work of Wycliffe Bible Translators. They translate the Bible into languages all over the world. And he showed us, see, they have a problem. They can get funding for translating the New Testament, but getting funding for translating the Old Testament is, old, is hard. And he showed us images, pages on a screen of the New Testament with the Old Testament quotes blank and the allusions to the Old Testament faded back. And it is mind-blowing. You cannot understand the New Testament if you do not understand the Old. You cannot understand Jesus. You cannot understand the Gospel without the Old Testament. God's work of salvation is one story. And that's what Stephen does in this sermon. If we don't know the story of Scripture, if we don't know how it fits together into one story, then we don't know our own story. And we can't really bear witness when the, peop- when the time comes. Stephen subverts the accusations against him by telling this story because he knows it. And he does it in a way that turns the tables on those who are claiming to be the descendants of the good guys, the protectors of the truth. When we bear witness to Christ in a hostile world, we must know both scripture and culture. And Stephen does. We must know who we are and understand the times in which we live. And a huge part of that is to show the reality of sin. And that's the fourth point. In the interview with Tim Keller that I mentioned earlier, he says that one of the hardest parts about evangelism today is that people don't have a sense of sin. They don't even think about it. They don't recognize it, and they, don't, they certainly don't have a concept of guilt about it. Stephen's story is more than a history lesson. Just like any good story, it builds to a climax of conflict before there can be a resolution. And in Stephen's story, his accusers and and the leaders of the Jewish people, they know what he's doing. He sets them up as the ones who have really betrayed God. They are the ones who have really sinned against God. They are just like their fathers, betraying God and sinning against Him. They are just like the pagans, he says. He only incidentally deals with the sin of the pagans because the ones that really matter are the sins of God's people. And sometimes you have to get people lost before they can be found, because they don't know they're lost. And when we refuse to speak of the realities of sin, we are not being nice. We are not doing anyone a favor. We are simply avoiding being uncomfortable. Stephen's sermon highlights the realities of sin, and that's his point in verses 51 to 53. His entire story shows a pattern of rejecting God time and time again, culminating in the rejection of the prophet that Moses spoke of. God's anointed, the Messiah, Jesus, who would save his people from their sins. It's infuriating. 
We don't want to be called sinners. But bearing witness to the gospel of Jesus Christ requires that we do. It's not easy, it's not fun, but it's necessary. Because when we shy away from, when we hide from sin, we hide the truth from people who need it. And we condemn them by doing so. And honestly, we hide the truth from ourselves as well. Because this pattern that Stephen exposes says that it is the people of God who continually sin. We hide the truth from ourselves. We need to be reminded of the seriousness of our sin. We need to be reminded. I need to be reminded. And when I downplay it or avoid it or don't acknowledge it, it grows in my heart, in my mind, in my life. And I too end up resisting the Holy Spirit. The good news of Jesus Christ is good news because we are separated from God and we need it. And so we need to be reminded of us. All of us do. Even our enemies. And that's the next point. Because Stephen shows this amazing ability throughout this passage to serve his enemies. He begins in humility and he ends in verse 60 by saying, Lord, don't charge them with this sin. I have to be honest. I don't think I could do what Stephen did. I am more than tempted to say, let them rot or avenge me. Look, I'm a hockey fan. I don't like staged fights, but... When someone messes with a player, a small player, or a goalie, I want to see retaliation, and I'm mad when I don't get it. I want the biggest guy on the team to drop that guy, or at least check him into the third row. That's what I want to see. That's not Stephen. His entire sermon answers his accusers, but it's not about primarily about his own defense. He knows better. I believe that he is so in love with Jesus, he so understood that what God was up to, that he preached not for himself, but for the very people that are accusing him. The Holy Spirit captured his heart and his mind to give them another chance to break the pattern. To stop resisting God. That's what he says. How long will you resist the Holy Spirit? Bearing witness means we put God first and others second. And he absorbs this teaching. He absorbs the teaching from Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. Don't take revenge. Love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. And that's hard. I don't naturally want to go that way. But that's the heart of the gospel. Because if anyone has a reason to want revenge, it's God. His entire sermon, Stephen's entire sermon says, Hey, you people keep rejecting God. God would be completely justified in scrapping the whole thing. But he doesn't. He never stops coming after his people. He never stops coming after us. And neither can we. And Stephen didn't either. And because of it, he had to suffer the consequences. Point six. I would love for the Disney version of this story. The Disney version of this story in verse 60 would be 
that the people become ashamed and realize the error of their ways and Stephen would be miraculously saved or some plucky young hero would face down the stone throwers instead of holding their coats. That's the Disney version. I've read real fairy tales. They are not the Disney version. Jesus told his disciples repeatedly that they would suffer just like he suffered. And Stephen is proof positive. Telling the truth has consequences. People do not want to hear that they are sinners. They do not want to hear that they are at fault and they are the enemies of God. They do not want to hear the truth. Why? Because we don't like the idea that we are not good. And that we need a savior or that we can't save ourselves. Telling the truth, even in a way that answers the accusations brought against us, doesn't mean we go free. Chances are it will enrage the opposition. Stephen doesn't go into this situation with his eyes closed. He knew what a blasphemy charge meant. He structured his entire sermon in a way that the audience at the end is forced into a confrontation and they will have one of two choices. If he's right, then they had been blasphemers and they needed to repent. If they are right, then Stephen is a blasphemer and he needs to to repent or die. Those are the only options that Stephen leaves open. Stephen did everything right. He is filled with the Holy Spirit. He spoke the truth in love and kindness, just like the prophets of old. And the Jewish leaders reacted just like their fathers before him had done. And so he suffers the consequences. Chances are we are not going to face a life and death situation for our faith. Not in our lifetimes, at least not here in the West. But there will be consequences. You may lose out on promotions Or opportunities. You may lose jobs or friends. Even family. There may be all kinds of consequences. And the question we have to ask ourselves is. Are we willing to be like Stephen? Are we willing to risk it? Do we really believe that our faith is worth it? Stephen did. He gave it all. Because he knew it was worth it. His vision of Jesus showed him that. Though he would suffer. As he was suffering, there was a greater reward in the end. This passage ends on a dark note. But in the end, I think we need to see God at work in the darkness. Stephen did. He saw Jesus in the middle of all of this. But I think that this passage, this is where we sort of transfer from Stephen to Dr. Luke for a moment. This passage is really important because it's a transition point. Saul not only holds the coats of those doing the stoning, he leads a great wave of persecution of the church in Jerusalem. No one is immune, we're told, man or woman, and the the church is scattered except for a very few. But this is a work of literature, and so there's foreshadowing going on. What's to come? The power of God to take any situation 
any situation and turn it to good. Because God cannot be thwarted. He was not in the Old Testament in Stephen's sermon, no matter how many times the people walked away from God. Over and over again, he made a way of salvation. Over and over again, he calls his people home to himself. And there were some devout men who came and buried Stephen, we're told. The light was not completely snuffed out. And I wonder if perhaps some who heard Stephen were convicted and became part of and became those devout men. Because let's face it, at least some of them who accused him, who were part of this council, were devout in their own way. They were wrong, but they were devout. But more than this, we see Saul, who would become Paul. And as we're going to see in weeks to come, frankly, in a chapter away, Paul is going to be converted by Jesus himself on the road to Damascus. And clearly, from Luke's account there, it is that confrontation that changes Saul. But I wonder, as Saul is on that road, does he hear echoes of Stephen's sermon in his mind? Is Stephen's sermon the catalyst that God uses to worm its way into Paul's mind so that he is able to hear Jesus when he confronts him? I don't know. But I think it's more than a little bit plausible. How much does the Holy Spirit use the fact of our witness in the lives of another somewhere years down the road? That's not for us to know. And in the meantime, in this very persecution of the church led by Saul, God uses the persecution to spread the church out beyond where it is. Because in Acts 1.8, God had said, Jesus had said to his people, you will be my witnesses, telling people about me everywhere, in Jerusalem, throughout Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And God can take anything and bend it to his will. It does not matter what it is. Because he is God. He is so much more than anything that could be contained in a land or a law or a temple. He is the creator and sustainer of all. He is the author and finisher of our faith. And he will not be thwarted. So what does it look like to bear witness to Christ in a hostile world? I submit that it looks like the guy who wasn't an apostle. The guy who was chosen out of the masses. The guy who was faithful, who was willing to stand up. Bearing witness to Christ looks like Stephen. 